Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me as always is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to some things coming up. We have CrimeCon coming up. Use Insight for 10% off your ticket. And we're also up for an Australian Podcast Award. Yes. uh, In the first weekend of May, the Australian Podcast Awards are on. You have up until the 3rd of April, I think, to vote for us in the most popular podcast category. We'll put links on our Facebook page in the Facebook group of how you can vote for us. Yeah, I mean, we're doing everything except hiring skywriters to tell you guys how to vote for us. We're very excited and we're really hopeful that you guys will go out there and vote for us. We don't often talk about really recent cases because usually there's not enough information available and we could cover them in so much more depth if we would just wait. But in this case, the case of the Turpin family, it's one I feel like we can cover in multiple parts over the next couple of years as there are updates and developments or if it ever goes to trial. So we're going to take a snapshot in this episode of what we know now, just two months into the investigation. And when the trial comes around, if this does go to trial, we will cover it in even more depth then. Or we'll just beg Jillian at Court Junkie Podcast to cover it because she would do an amazing job, as always. This story starts on January 14th, 2018, just before sunrise, when a 17-year-old girl and her younger sibling snuck out of a window of their house with a charged cell phone that didn't have service. The younger girl got scared and turned back. But the 17-year-old kept going. Using the deactivated cell phone, she called 911, the only number that works with a phone that doesn't have service. She reported that she and 12 siblings were being held in their home against their will, including being shackled to the beds. Police immediately went out to where she was and approached what they thought was a skinny 10-year-old. She told them of what happened in the house, an overview of the abuse and neglect, and even showed them pictures she had taken to prove it. She had been planning this escape for two years. The police went to the house in a residential area of Paris, California, to do a welfare check based on what they were told. What they found led to the immediate arrests of David and Louise Turpin, the parents of all 13 of the children in the home. The children were between the ages of 2 and 29, and only the little two-year-old appeared to be a healthy weight. The rest were malnourished to the point that their growth and development were stunted. Three of the children were shackled to their beds, and early reports indicate that there were attempts by the parents to unshackle them before the authorities entered the house. The house was filthy and dark. It was so bad that cadaver dogs were brought into the home to search. There was a concern that perhaps there were children who did not survive the extreme abuse and their bodies may be hidden in the home. It doesn't appear that they found anything and no one has reported knowing of a child the Turpins had who was suddenly unaccounted for. The children were given food and transported to the hospital, with the adult children going to one hospital and the minor children going to another. Known collectively as the Turpin children, or the Magnificent Thirteen, as locals have decided to dub them to separate their identity from their parents. 
They're recovering from their lifelong ordeal in the custody of this state and hundreds of thousands of dollars have been raised to pay for both their care and their rehabilitation, including scholarships so they can receive an education. After nearly 33 years of marriage and 29 years of parenthood, many are wondering how this couple got to this place of torturing their own children and how it took nearly three decades for anyone to do anything about it. So today we're going to turn back the clock and piece together what we know now about David and Louise Turpin based on what's been reported in the media. We should start with the abuse that would be uncovered. Authorities have said they don't know everything yet because they're not pushing the children. They're building trust with them. And as time goes on, they're disclosing more and more. But the focus is on helping the kids heal and not hurting or traumatizing them further. This isn't graphic, but it isn't easy listening either. So if you want to avoid the details of the abuse, feel free to skip ahead, probably five minutes or so, what we do know about the abuse. At some point when the adult children were minors, David and Louise started tying them to their beds as a punishment, and they would tie them using ropes. They were spanked and later beaten and strangled. Whatever abuse and neglect they started with just escalated and became more sadistic and violent over the years. And authorities said it had gotten even worse in the last eight years. A big escalation occurred when one of the children managed to break free from the ropes used to tie them to the bed. David bought chains with padlocks to replace the ropes and they weren't only used to tie up for punishment. They were tied up when the parents decided that they should be. Based on the state of their mattresses, they were not released to use the bathroom. It would get so bad that some of them spent the majority of their time chained up to their beds. They were not allowed to leave the house without their parents and rarely left at all, really. They were not sent to school and were not allowed to talk to neighbours or even extended family members. This all helped keep the abuse hidden. Another way the abuse was hidden was to keep the kids in bed while most people were up and about. The kids stayed up all night and went to bed around four or five in the morning. Something that caught my eye on the bankruptcy documents was that David worked a second shift. It is thought that the family shifted their own timetable to make him going off to work their morning and then everyone stayed up all night after he got home. Instead of conforming to the world, they had their schedule rotated around David. The children were allowed to eat on a strict schedule with a strict portion only once a day. The parents, however, they ate normally. They would leave food like pies out on the counter in full view of the kids, but not let them have any. Honestly, I wonder if this was all a setup, that they were putting that out there to tempt the kids to try and sneak some and then punish them when they did. Along those same lines, they bought toys that they left in the house and in boxes. The children were not allowed to play with them. They were allowed one or two showers a year, and when they were rescued, it was noted that they were all quite dirty. They were only allowed to wash their hands up to their wrists and were punished if they washed more than that. At first, I wondered if some of this extreme control over resources like food and water started as pressure 
to stay financially secure with such a large family. And then it went too far because the parents were either mentally unwell or maybe they're psychopaths. But that was before I saw their bankruptcy filings. In 2009, David bought himself a brand new Mustang. Louise bought herself at least one wedding dress, if not more, for wedding renewal services. They racked up extreme amounts of credit card debt in a relatively short amount of time while they were not feeding the children. They took trips to Disney with 15 people, and that's not cheap. And based on how infrequently the children left the house, they probably would have been just as happy with a trip to a playground. The parents bought the toys and the food. They just didn't give them to the children, but they spent the money on them. They did buy them. So they were spending the money. They just weren't using it to care for their children properly. And I think this abuse would have happened if they made a million dollars a year. I think it would have happened if they had only one child. I no longer think this was ever about stress or limited resources. David faces one count of a lewd act on a child under the age of 14. It would be, in my view, unlikely that this was an isolated incident. And this is where I think we may see additional charges come out. If there was sexual abuse in the home, it may be one of the last things any of the children will disclose. There is a shame and a stigma, unfortunately, and they need to be ready to disclose this before they will. Okay, so let's go back to the parents and their backstory. David Turpin grew up in Princeton, West Virginia, and was a quiet guy. He was a good student. He didn't party or get into trouble. He was religious, even a member of the school's Bible club, and was a co-captain of the chess club. Honestly, nothing anyone has reported to the media has made his upbringing sound like anything outside the normal. His parents are described as salt-of-the-earth types. David graduated Virginia Tech and went into engineering. Louise Turpin grew up as Louise Robinette, with parents Wayne and Phyllis and two younger sisters. The family was Pentecostal and deeply religious. Wayne was a minister. Louise's upbringing wasn't as solid as David's. According to Louise's sisters and a cousin, a close relative sexually abused their mother, them, Louise and a few cousins. It sounds like it was a tragic open secret within the family. Louise was only a sophomore in high school when she started dating David, who was 23 years old. Phyllis found out about her daughter's relationship and, while it wasn't really something that they would normally allow, Phyllis allowed it to continue secretly. She did not tell Wayne, who would have objected to it for religious reasons. But Wayne did find out they were dating when David signed Louise out of school one day when she was 16 and they ran off together to Texas. It's unclear how the police caught up with them, but they did and made Louise come home and Phyllis told her that she needed to come home. When she did get home, her father basically said that she was making her own adult decisions now and the couple was married shortly after. Wayne and Phyllis, however, would divorce in the next few years. Phyllis remarried and had three more children. After their marriage, David and Louise moved to Texas, and their first child was born in 1988. They kept in touch with their families, but being in Texas gave quite a bit of distance. One of Louise's sisters moved in with them while she was at college and said she didn't see any abuse, but that they were very strict parents. 
and they treated her like she was one of their children. She said David would go in the bathroom while she was showering, and it made her uncomfortable, but that he never did anything else toward her. She didn't tell anyone at the time because she had just moved out to Texas. She had no connections other than David and Louise. She was young and she felt stuck, but being an adult with life experience and looking back, she can see how David in the bathroom while she showered was absolutely wrong. The second child was born in 1992, and after that, the kids were born every year or two. They settled in the Fort Worth area, and as their family grew, they initially sent their children to school. Their oldest child, a daughter, went at least kindergarten to the third grade in a Fort Worth area school. Classmates remember her because she was bullied in school for how she smelled and her dirty and ill-fitting clothes. When the family had grown to eight children in 2000, they left Fort Worth and moved to a small town called Rio Vista, Texas. Pictures of what the Fort Worth house looked like when they left it have been put online, and it is absolutely filthy. There are large, dark stains that look like mud, but based on other reports, they may have been feces. They had the windows covered up with boards. It's not clear when they began homeschooling their growing family, but I'm under the impression it started while they were living in Fort Worth, but for sure by the time they made it to Rio Vista. Rio Vista is a very small town. The population is under 900. Initially, the Turpins lived in a brick home on a 36-acre property, but they would later move to a four-bedroom, two-bathroom, double-wide trailer on the same property. They were located at the end of a dirt road, but had a neighbour who lived directly across from the brick house. The neighbour who lived across from the brick house spoke to the media and said the family kept to themselves and were rarely seen wandering far from their own property. David would leave to go to work while Louise stayed home with the kids to homeschool. They did not appear to participate in any homeschool groups or activities. They literally just stayed home all the time. And as a former homeschooler, I can say that is not typical of homeschool families. I leave the house far less now than I did when we homeschooled. One Christmas, the family bought all of their children brand new bicycles, but no one ever saw the kids riding them. They stayed on the porch with the price tags on and never moved. A child who lived on the street, who is now a young adult herself, played with the kids a few times, but they would never even tell her their names. When she went over to the house one time, hearing the kids outside playing, they closed the door on her face. By the time the family left Texas around 2010, they had added four more children. And when the family left, they literally just walked away. The brick house they initially lived in was disgusting. Dirty diapers were left in waist-high piles, and dead pets were found in the home. And that's in addition to just the trash. They also left the trailer behind and two of their vehicles. Eventually, the cars were repossessed and the property was foreclosed on. We need to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then we will talk about what was found on that property after they moved out. (music) 
hiring. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter, they get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter with their hiring needs. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The trailer was still full of their belongings, including photographs and furniture, and their trash and more dirty diapers. It appears that they just piled their trash and waste around them rather than dispose of it properly. A neighbour said they had a dumpster on the property at one point, but quickly filled that as well. Knowing the family had dogs, some neighbours went into the homes after the turpins had moved out to make sure the animals were not left behind. It's a sad fact, but any animal rescue will tell you this happens. A family is evicted or suddenly moves and they literally just leave their animals behind. It's incomprehensible to me how people can do this, but David and Louise Turpin seemed capable of almost anything, to be honest. They did find two small dogs in the trailer who were still alive, thanks to all the waste left behind that they were able to eat. A man and his mother, the Baldwins, bought the Forco's property to rehab it and turn it into a rental property in the spring of 2011. In an interview with CNN, the mother said the bank made her sign a document saying that she wouldn't hold them responsible if she got sick or injured touring the property. And I'm not sure this was the house, the trailer or both. This was before she even bought it. Just walking through it seemed risky. It wasn't just the filth or possible mould. There was also substantial damage to the interior of the trailer beyond the filth, with the bathroom floor rotted through. There was one very odd thing that they noticed, interior locks, cabinets, the refrigerator, the toy box, basically anything that could be locked was locked. It's been reported that there were scratch marks on the door, though possibly those were from the animals. But one neighbour said there were ropes either tied to or near the beds. The Turpins never came on social services radar, though. There were a few incidents where the police were called to the property, however. In June 2001, the police went out when the family's dog bit their then four-year-old daughter. The daughter needed stitches and the dog was put down. When this incident occurred, they were only in the home for a year, Even if police entered the home to check on the dog bite situation, the place wouldn't have been the uninhabitable situation that it would be found in when they moved out nine years later. It probably wasn't spotless because it doesn't appear cleaning was something they ever did, even periodically, but it wasn't likely as bad as it would become. Then in February of 2003, the family's three pigs got loose 
and ate a big bag of dog food that a neighbor had stored in a trash can outside. David paid for the dog food and the trash can that the pigs tore up, and that was the end of it. This time, it's possible authorities never even went into the home, but just mediated the solution between the neighbors. Around this time, or maybe a little after, one of the daughters ran away from the home, but was returned. I've seen it reported both as the police returned her and that a neighbor returned her. This seems like a missed opportunity to discover what was happening in the home, and I really believe that we'll find out that this incident of one of the children running away also sparked an escalation in the abuse in the home. We obviously don't know that, but that's one of those things that tends to do that. The family landed next in California, and at this point had grown to 12 children. It's been said by family members that Louise saw their big homeschooling family as reality television material, and that was a motivation for such a big move. David got a job as an engineer earning 140000 a year, which is a decent income. Their rental house cost 1900 a month. I don't mean to judge anyone else's finances, but there was no reason they couldn't have lived on that single income, even in California and even with a large family. It would be a frugal life, but that's something many people with large families decide is worth it to have a large family. It's the trade-off. But they didn't live within their means. They filed for bankruptcy twice, with the most recent filing being in 2011. This was a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, so they were claiming their debt was beyond what they could pay back. So this would essentially wipe their debt clean. Their assets were around 150000 More than half of that was David's 401k retirement savings from his job. Their debts were around 63000 in secured debt with their vehicles listed and 177000 in unsecured debts like credit cards. They also claimed a $1,000 deficit in their monthly income and their monthly expenses, claiming they spent 2500 on groceries every month. At the same time, we now know they were severely restricting and rationing food for their children, yet they claimed that $2,500 grocery bill each month. Right around the time of this move, Louise told her sister she had moved away from the church and that her and David were looking into different religions. With letting go of their religious limits, they began going out and drinking for the first time, leaving the younger kids in the care of the older ones. According to the sister, they even experimented with swinging and Louise had a sexual encounter with a man she met online with David's full knowledge and consent. This was around the time of Louise's 40th birthday, and it was a major shift in behaviour. Because the family had no friends and kept family largely at arm's length, there are no clues as to what sparked this extreme change. By 2010, two or three of their children were for sure adults, and if they'd been properly educated, they could have been off on their own or even working and contributing to the household, but they weren't allowed to. They weren't allowed to often leave the house with one notable exception. The oldest son was allowed to attend community college starting in 2014 and went for a few semesters. Louise would drive him there, sit in the car waiting for him to finish classes and then drive him straight back home. It does not appear any of the adult girls were given this same opportunity. Without even a church home in California, the family was completely cut off from 
any community outside their home. Whether that's the school community, the homeschool community, their immediate neighborhood, or a church community, they had absolutely none of it. And even the one son allowed to take college classes, he was dropped off for the class and picked up immediately afterwards, not allowed to socialize. Meanwhile, back in West Virginia, the Turpins' extended family was following them on social media and talking to them on the phone. Louise put out this idea to them that they were wealthy. She talked about the huge house they lived in and the cars they owned and how they never had money problems. She even said she couldn't empathize with the siblings' financial issues because David made so much money that she never had to worry about it. And of course, we know they filed for bankruptcy twice. But Facebook seemed to back up this fantasy that Louise was selling. She didn't post a lot of pictures of the kids, but the ones she did were of trips to Disney with the family all wearing matching outfits. They renewed their vows in Las Vegas three times at least. And one year has a picture of all 13 kids wearing matching outfits. Though, according to the Elvis impersonator who officiated the renewal ceremonies, the kids were there the other years as well. And I never thought an Elvis impersonator would be part of our podcast, but here we are. Milestone. In the pictures from Vegas and from Disney, the kids had matching outfits and they all smiled from the camera and they looked happy. They did look thin, though, and you could particularly see it in their arms. The photos are out there online with their faces blurred, and that's to protect the privacy of the children. But when the story first broke, I went onto Louise's Facebook page and saw them not blurred out. In the most recent picture, seven of the children were over the age of 18, but not one of them looked over age 16. They were so small, and none of them looked like they'd filled out in any of the way young adults do. A few looked on the cups of puberty, but they had no way appeared to be fully developed adults. And this would turn out to be an accurate interpretation. The 29-year-old daughter reportedly weighed 82 pounds when she was rescued, which is a healthy weight for an 11-year-old. No one in West Virginia had actually seen the family in several years. They wouldn't let anyone come visit them and they would not return to visit. Louise's father was so excited to visit them when he retired, but Louise told him not to come. David's parents last saw the kids anywhere from six to eight years ago and were not sure under what circumstances. Even when Louise would talk to the family, she wouldn't let anyone talk to or Skype with the kids, though she was asked for that repeatedly. When people would comment about wanting to see her or the kids on her Facebook posts, she would just ignore the comments. When Louise's parents died, she did not travel back for either funeral. Sometime in 2016, when the youngest child was about a year old, Louise cut off phone contact with her family and her social media presence dropped substantially. We're going to take one more break for a word from a sponsor, and then we will talk about what we do know about their life in California. These days, you can get pretty much everything on demand, like this podcast. You listen to it when you want, when it's convenient for you, not when we broadcast it. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can do that on demand when you want to do it, when it's convenient for you? 
with stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, including international ones, using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier just picks it up for you. You just click, print, mail, you're done. It really couldn't be easier. I use stamps.com when I'm mailing our Patreon packages. I can send them to all these different countries, printing out the customs forms with correct and exact postage. I'm not wasting money trying to figure out how many stamps I need to put on anything. Stamps.com is a time saver. And right now you can use Insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, for this special offer. Use code INSIGHT to get $55 in free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in INSIGHT. That's Stamps.com. Enter INSIGHT. On initially arriving in California, the family lived in Marietta, California, starting in 2010. Then they moved to Paris, California, and that would have been in 2014. They were in the home less than four years when the kids were rescued. In 2011, David was listed as the principal of a newly formed private school, the Sandcastle Day School. The address was the same as the family's home. This seems odd to some people from comments I've seen online, but this is in full compliance with the California homeschool laws. There are four legal options for homeschooling in California. Two require a connection to a private or a public school. In some places, they're called independent study programs. Others, they're called virtual schools. Basically, you homeschool under the guidance and direction of a private or public school and how much guidance and direction varies. Obviously, the Turpins weren't going to choose anything that put them on the radar. So there are two options that leave you entirely independent of a larger school system, and that's either use a credentialed teacher in the home like a tutor, or you register your homeschool as a private school, and the latter was the option the Turpins chose. But even if you pick this private school option, you have to adhere to the same educational laws as any other private school, which includes covering certain subjects and record keeping. They didn't do this, obviously, and there was no oversight. No one was checking on them. When the kids were found in the home, it appears they only had the most basic education. We do know that all of the adult children can read and write and recite Bible passages. Writing was one of the only things the children were allowed to do at all, and when the kids were rescued, stacks and stacks and stacks of journals were found. Now, it's said these journals chronicle much of the abuse and neglect in the home. So you have to wonder if the parents even bothered to read them at any point. They cannot be admitted into court on their own, though. The parents have a right in the U.S. system to confront their accusers and you cannot cross-examine a journal. They will only be allowed to be used if the children take the stand or if the parents take the stand. They can be used to question or impeach the parents' testimony, but alone they cannot be admitted. Nevertheless, they are important investigative tools and they are being read in there entirely by law enforcement. In the school year starting 2016, there were six students enrolled starting as young as the fifth grade. 
In the US, that means the child would be 10 to 12 years old. The youngest child being only two wouldn't have been enrolled and the older six would have completed high school already. Neighbours in their new California neighbourhood noticed the family was odd. It was harder to hide in Paris, California, where the houses were five feet apart, than it was in Rio Vista when they had that acreage at the end of the dirt road. Neighbours never saw more than a few out at a time, and generally that was just to do yard work and then they would go right back inside. The yard became unkempt to the point that the city code enforcement told them they needed to clean it up. This attention on the family would have been unwanted, so the parents would have been motivated to keep this situation under control. Some of the neighbours were not even aware that the family had more than four or five children at the most. They kept to themselves and didn't talk to the neighbours, but many neighbours have expressed feeling some guilt about not intervening. And the internet commenters have certainly called them out on that, but how could they have known? The parents clearly used the insular worlds they created for their family to keep the abuse and neglect secret. The kids wouldn't respond when neighbours tried to talk to them, and yes, they found the children shy and awkward and the family odd. But people, they're allowed to be weird. They're allowed to keep odd hours. The neighbours, they couldn't have known what was actually going on inside that house. The youngest child, the 13th, was a little girl born when Louise was 47. It appears there are about eight years between her and the next youngest child, possibly up to 10 years, leading to speculation online that perhaps the baby was actually one of the older daughter's children through incest. Others doubt that those older girls, as emaciated as they were, would have been able to conceive and carry a baby. A Riverside County newspaper, the Press Enterprise, was able to obtain the baby's birth certificate. She was born in a hospital, so there wouldn't have been a way to falsify the birth certificate like there would have been had they done a home birth. The birth certificate shows that Louise and David are the parents. Authorities, though, are running DNA tests on all 13 of the children to make sure that they really are all related and all the biological children of David and Louise. According to Louise's half-brother, Louise's dream of being a reality TV star led her to want to have a 14th child. And this dream of being a reality TV star, that's where the Facebook photos come from, in my opinion, Looking at those photos, it seemed so odd when you look at the abject neglect and abuse the children suffered otherwise. In one photo, the children all wore shirts from Dr. Seuss that said thing one, thing two, all the way up to thing 13 for the baby. So it wasn't like someone just swung by Walmart and picked up $5 matching t-shirts. They really made it look like they were family-oriented and... They focused on their children with custom matching outfits. When I see those photos and the photos from Disneyland and the photos from the marriage renewal, it seems to me it was keeping up appearances, as you said, something they could put forward for a reality TV pilot. I think that's exactly what it is. I think Louise was trying to catch the eye of a production company, But I think this was a fantasy world she had because there was no evidence that they ever even contacted the media 
or a production company or a TV channel or anything about the reality show. She wasn't putting herself out there. So I have a feeling that this was some dream in Louise's head that she occasionally made it look like maybe it could happen by dressing up her children like they were dolls and pretending. I think there must have been some kind of delusional state going on there, and I'm sure there would be some kind of psychological assessment as part of the trial. But it just seems to me there was a lot of break from reality going on here with the plans of having our 14th child when they really couldn't look after the 13 they had and the inability to keep a house a certain standard and the posts on Facebook. It just seems to me they did not, they weren't able to cope with reality. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, when we're saying that these houses were gross, I mean, could you imagine just walking through your house with one dirty diaper just sitting there and just eating with that one dirty diaper sitting there, let alone waist-high piles of dirty diapers? I mean, this is this is beyond. This is just, I think it's beyond what most of our listeners hopefully can comprehend. I mean, unless they thought moving to California that directors and producers just walked up to you and offered you these deals. I'm not sure unless without actively pursuing it themselves, I don't see how it could happen. And in the environment they lived in, how could these camera crews come through the house? I don't know if they actually really planned on this reality career. I think it was a delusion of Louisa's, some kind of fantasy world she lived in. The Turpins had planned to move to Oklahoma very soon when the children were rescued. David had a job transfer, and I wonder if the move was part of why the 17-year-old decided to escape then before they disappeared into another state. The Turpins were initially charged with multiple counts of torture and false imprisonment. Because the two-year-old appeared healthy, the torture and false imprisonment charges do not include her. There are also multiple counts of harm or cruelty to a dependent adult, willful harm to a child, and child endangerment. The willful harm and endangerment charges do apply to the littlest. David was also charged with a lewd act with a child under the age of 14. In February, three new charges of child abuse were added to both of them, and Louise added a count of felony assault. The parents have a standard three-year restraining order against them from contacting the children. This is not unusual and is often issued in these cases. Criminal defendants are barred from contacting their victims. So in talking to Good Morning Britain, a sister and cousin of Louise said that they went to the jail to speak with both Louise and David. They can't say a lot of what was said, obviously, but they reported that David sobbed and seemed to be aware of the charges against him, what they mean, and everything he had done whether he was sobbing because he was facing the rest of his life in prison or he's somehow suddenly remorseful, we don't know. Louise, though, they described her as in la-la land and insane. They want the psychological evaluation done on her quickly because she doesn't seem to understand what's going on and that she isn't going to just get out of jail soon. When asked in a very recent interview with the television personality Dr. Oz, her sister said that Louise did not ask about the children. 
The adult children are under conservatorship until at least the end of May. This gives them time to physically heal from the immediate issues and start figuring out what options there are for them. There will be a hearing later to determine if the conservatorship will continue. The conservator has the power to make decisions for them, which is something that they very much need right now as they're coming out of a home where some of the kids don't know what medicine is. Some don't understand what a police officer was and that they were there to help them. They also have an attorney who meets with them to make sure their wants and needs are being advocated for. The minor children are in care of social services and their location has not been disclosed. They have not seen their adult siblings since this happened, but they've done video chats to keep in touch. The community has rallied around the Magnificent 13, as they refer to them in the community. Fundraisers have raised money to go toward their short-term and their long-term care. Donations of clothing and toys have flooded in. Basic life skills are being taught to them, and they've been introduced to technology, TV, movies, all these things that they were previously barred from. But let's note that David and Louise did not bar themselves from any of that. The adult kids, and I'm sure the little kids too, they don't read any of the news reports about their case, according to the attorney for the older children. But they do know that those who have heard about their ordeal are concerned for them. There are a lot of questions left, and some may never be answered. A big one is, were the parents in this together, or was one of them dominant? In their specific religious tradition, in their upbringing, the woman would have been submissive to the husband, and David was an adult when they married, and Louise was not. She came from an abusive background and likely would have been vulnerable to an overbearing and controlling man. But that doesn't mean she was abused or threatened into submission herself. She is sharing most of the charges with him at this point, and in fact has a felony charge, a felony assault charge that is just on her. So we'll have to wait and see what comes out of this, the psychological exams, any further investigation to see if one of them Possibly Louise has a lesser, ends up with lesser charges. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if either one of them throw the other one under the bus. It's interesting with all the information coming out with Louise's current mental state, if she was always like that or if that's a recent thing, if she was getting abused in or neglected in some way to cause that mental state? Is it something that she's just, I don't know, putting on for uh, the trial? It will be interesting what comes out in this psychological examination that will obviously happen at some stage. And there's another question about the 17-year-old. It was recently discovered that she had a YouTube channel under an alias and recorded videos of herself singing. She also had an Instagram account with selfies and pictures of the family dogs. These dogs, by the way, appeared to be well-fed and they have been placed in new homes. It's unclear how she had the ability to record and post these videos or even when they were recorded. I kind of wonder if she found this deactivated cell phone earlier than when she escaped and first used it to get on the internet using the family's Wi-Fi. The family's home was a pit. David and Louise could have easily had 
old cell phones they weren't using anymore just floating around in a pile of trash. They lost track of it, and the 17-year-old found it. Though I can't help but wonder if this YouTube channel, the videos of her singing, was part of a grander plan for this reality TV career. Yeah, if Louise had put that in the kids' heads, I mean, it's possible she was feeding them this idea that they were going to go to California, they were going to become famous, everything was going to get better. Because it just seems bizarre to me that the children were chained up most of the time, but then there's videos of the 17-year-old singing and apparently appearing happy in these selfies. When did this happen? Right. Those are big questions that I have, and I was really pretty surprised to see those. And she had plotted her escape for two years, but I think maybe just because she was so sheltered, she may not have understood a lot of the other ways she could have reached out. Uh, Her older brother was in the community college and didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm being held prisoner and I'm a 22-year-old man. He was just, he'd go to class, he'd kind of linger as long as he could, and then he'd get in the car and go home. This could come back to a Gypsy Blanchard type situation, though, if they're so used to this world, this abuse and neglect, that they don't know any different, that this is normal to them. Right. They don't know that there's a way out. I mean, one of them tried to run away in Texas and that ended poorly. One of them got out of the ropes and then they ended up padlocked. Every time it seems they would try to get free or do something, everything got worse. So it would be scary to reach out because if it didn't work, if if she didn't get clear of the house and get the police there, what punishment would she have been facing? I mean, she risked a lot, a lot to do that. You know, she's absolutely, I mean, I have all these questions of why this, why then, what happened here and there. But in the end of the day, she saved the lives of herself and her siblings. Exactly. Due to the bulk of the evidence that their defense attorneys have to go through, it's going to take a while for this case to make its way through the courts, even if the parents do eventually plead guilty. The potential sentence, if convicted on all counts, is nearly 100 years. Even with a deal, it wouldn't be surprising if they spent the rest of their lives in jail. But that's still nothing compared to the lifetime of physical and emotional scars that they have left on their children. 